It is uh, P Professor Sheila Benabib who uh, would like to who uh, would share her thoughts on this with us today, and we are very pleased to to have her here. We are uh, also um, um, the program is like uh, like like this. Uh, so uh, um, we are also uh, <coughs> very glad that um, Inga Bustan, the prorector of the of the University of Oslo, would like to uh, to, to uh, give a. Um, and welcome to uh, to uh, Penabib to, to this lecture. We are very pleased to, uh, to 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 have her here on on on, the, on this team. She uh, she uh, gladly accepted immediately to come to to say something on on this and to introduce Penabib. Uh, um, uh, After that, I will give a kind of broader introduction to to this team today, and uh, and then the floor is for Sheila uh, Penabib. And after that, there will be. There will be a, a room for for uh, questions and comments. I, I will also comment a bit myself if there is uh, if you don't uh, raise your hands very very quick quickly afterwards. So you better do that. So please, Inga Busta. It's a great privilege for me as the pro-rector of the University of Oslo and as a philosopher to welcome Sheila Ben-Habib and all of you to this ARENA lecture. A tradition at our university we are indeed proud of and which inspires us and motivates our common goals as scholars and scientists. As we have seen too often, a vivid and healthy democracy is not only built upon education. It must be aware of the difference between an educated man or woman and a human being with insight capable of using her knowledge to create a better world. A topic as today's on the significance of a global citizen in Europe and the future of multiculturalism fits perfectly into the University of Oslo's plans for the next semester, where the overall topic will be precisely the concept of global citizen. The link between responsibility and global awareness Solidarity and academic freedom will be discussed through key lectures the whole autumn. And what could be more appropriate than starting up with Ben Habib, who has given us so many books and articles on being a citizen and in particular a woman in a changing world. As she writes, our contemporary condition is marked by emergence of new forms of identity politics around the globe. Politics is the space we create in common by virtue of what we can share with each other in the public sphere. We have seen through history too many examples of educated citizens who have misused their knowledge, acted against democracy and in the extreme ended up as terrorists. Even if this is the marginal few, it shows us that education in itself is not a guarantee against violence, humiliation and abuse. The event in Oslo and at Utøya last summer added a new dimension to the need for reimagining democratic society. How can our society be inclusive and at the same time defend our own values? How can we express even more clearly the respects for human integrity and our inherent worth as humans? 
how can the society make room for unpopular and extreme opinions, while at the same time be sensitive to the fear of terror? And not the least, how may we combine the fruitful and sound nationalism with global solidarity? Reimagining democratic societies are about self-reflection and self-scrutiny. We have to look at our own history and our own institutions with critical perspectives. How seriously do we debate with radicals and outstanders? How open to all political and ideological views are the society at the university? And how do we as teachers act as role models when it comes to being inclusive and caring? while at the same time encourage intellectual inquiry. The concern with overcoming the discrimination and marginal marginalization that women experience as women in all areas of life provides us with a critical standard, according to Ben Habib. In light of this concern, she questions prevailing conceptions of justice and the good life. The goal for higher education is not tolerance, but understanding, according to the American philosopher Linda Alcoff. To engage in the other person is crucial, and this takes courage. To disagree with someone is often challenging in due to the framework or the settings. We must teach and encourage the students to be critical through seeking confrontations with people they disagree with, visiting other cultures, and religions and trying out their way of looking at the world. As Alkoff, Ben Habib lends her ear to women, but also student learning in general, and the process of shifting positions and perspectives. The core of the open society is to develop and develop again and again for every new generation a public dialogue, a dialogue wide enough for the uncomfortable dilemmas. So once again, welcome to all of you to this ARENA lecture, and I will now give the word back to Erik Odvar Eriksson, who will introduce Ben Abib more thoroughly. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, and thank you very much. And um, as... Uh, uh, as was said now uh, by Inga Busta, one of the backgrounds for inviting uh, Ben Abib to, uh, to Oslo is, uh, is twofold. One is, in a way, this uh, horrific uh, terrorist attack on the government building and the political youth camp in the uh, 22nd of July last year, causing the, the death of 77 people, leaving a whole country in shock. The, the terrorist justified his actions with reference to the takeover of multiculturalism in Norway. It may be that the person is, is mentally ill, but the ideas he refers to of national purity and Christian supremacy thrive among right-wing extremists and xenophobic groups. So this connects also to the other political practical reason for inviting Sheila Benabib to, uh, to Oslo. That is, in, in the contemporary Europe, the cosmopolitan view that the ultimate units of uh, protection are human beings or persons, not, or persons, not groups, not cultures, and not states. This view that these are the ones that, that uh, deserve protection and should be the, the, the basic unit of legitimation is on, uh, on retreat. It is challenged. 
It, this cosmopolitan idea embodied the idea that every human being is equal and that this special status has global force. And this, this view, this also which is a European view, has been challenged by nationalist and xenophobic movements. The, visions, the vision of an open society of difference, rights and justice that is defended by supranational political arrangements is often identified as an elite project which meets popular res resistance these days. Current developments in European integration linked to economic and, uh, and monetary crisis of the Eurozone, populist backlashes, Euroscepticism, Islamophobia, and most recently also right-wing fundamentalism and violence, they have challenged our understanding of cosmopolitanism as an, an irreversible process. In line with the Enlightenment. How then to cope with difference and pluralism in a just manner? Can societies that have learned, that this document that we have learned from time to time, can they reverse their own learning processes? Are cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism dead souls, universalists out of touch with the ordinary citizens and their concerns? These are the questions raised by, by, uh, by Shishila Benabib. And who could be better positioned to guide us in these matters than Shishila Benabib, who so nicely navigates between the demands of the generalized order and those of the concrete order, between universalism and particularism, particularism in, in her works? Here we discover a great sensitivity for cultural difference, and her cosmopolitanism is the vision of another universalism than Eurocentrism and hard-nosed rights politics. Hers is a justificatory universalism. Her position is unmistakably close to the modern Frankfurt one, and it is one, one premised on the rights to have rights also with Hannah Arendt. Human rights straddle the line between morality and justice. They enable us to judge the legitimacy of the law. Human rights in, in um, Ben Abib's words are articulated in a way the moral principles protecting the communicative freedom of individuals. So what, what is then cosmopolitanism? Is there a basis for such a doctrine in the present situation where we on the one hand see the emergence of a narrow, of narrow nationalism and xenophobic movements and on the other hand an imperialistic neoliberal empire of unfettered marketization? Is there an alternative to a soulless, is there then an alternative to the soulless despotism of a world state that Immanuel Kant, Kant warned, warned against? What is the alternative if, if these are the this situation? Benavib's innovations involve distinguishing between the principle of rights and the schedule of rights. And she sees the intrinsic connection between human rights and democratic self-determination. Conceptual innovations like Jewish generativity and democratic iterations are contributions to the development of a discourse theory of law and democracy. Benabib is skeptical to a world state for the protection of human rights and puts her trust in civil society mobilization supported by a new global order, complementary to a rep republican federalism. The interpretation of basic rights is a political one, not a legal, legal one. It's not, the, it's not only the game for jurists. There can be no cosmopolitan rights without contextualization and articulation of self-governing entities. In other words, no humanitarization without representation. 
Ben Habib is also very sensitive to the impact of historical experience. But then she also has an interest, interesting background, from Istanbul to Yale, to Frankfurt, to Harvard, and to Yale again. She is born in Istanbul by, of Jewish parents, educated in USA and Germany, and currently is the Eugene Mayer Professor of Political Science and Philosophy at Yale University. She is the author of many books and articles, as also Inga uh, referred to. But, but one book that, that that was very important to me in my uh, younger days. It was the uh, Critique Norman Ut Utop Utopia, which was uh, which, which uh, was published in uh, 1986. Pretty interesting uh, book still. So, but then, but then after that came situating the self. There was feminism as critic, feminist contentions, the reluctant uh, modernism of Hannah Arendt, the claims of culture the rights of others, and other cosmopolitanism, hospitality, serenity, and democratic iterations, and, the, and this year, dignity in adversity, in, in adversity, human rights in troubled times. So, and this is, in a way, the, this is the background for, for this speak today. So please, the floor is yours. Um, thank you very much uh, for this invitation and for these extremely kind uh, comments, Prorector uh, Borstad, uh, Professor Ekerson. Uh, thank you very much uh, indeed. I wish to begin by expressing my deep uh, sympathy and solidarity with the victims and families of Anders Bering Breivik's massacre of 22nd July 2011. The day was not only a trauma for the Norwegian nation, but a blow to all of us who believe in toleration, coexistence, and understanding among peoples of different religions, races, cultures, ethnicities, languages, and sexual orientation. These old ideals of the Enlightenment have been challenged again and again since September 11, 2001. There are forces in our world that see themselves in the midst of a global civil war between Islam and Europe or the West. <coughs> These sides play into each other's hands. The bombings in Madrid in 2004, London 2007, the Danish caricature controversy over the representation of the Prophet Muhammad in 2005, the murder of Theo van Gogh in the Netherlands by a Moroccan militant, and the French scarf affair since 1989 to 2004, are some of the most contentious public confrontations of these last decades in which the forces of political Islam and their critics in Western democracies have confronted each other. Viewed against this background, cosmopolitanism seems like pious, wishes at best, and naive approaches or appeasement of the dark forces of our civilization at worst. Carl Schmitt is the theorist du jour, and the left and the right find satisfaction in the language of the eternal confrontation between find und Freund or friend and foe in politics. In the first part of my lecture, I wish to defend the philosophical conception of cosmopolitanism I articulated in my last book, Dignity in Adversity, Human Rights in Troubled Times, 
And then I want to return in the second half of my lecture to these contemporary challenges in Europe. In the spring of 2004, the far-seeing, even if irritating political scientist Samuel P. Huntington published Dead Souls, the denationalization of the American elite. Huntington, who only a decade earlier had created the famous phrase, the clash of civilizations, in this 2004 essay resorts to another memorable phrase. He quotes from Walter Scott's poem, The Lay of the Last Minstrel. Breathes there the man with soul so dead, who never to himself had said, This is my own, my native land, whose heart hath never within him burned, as home his footsteps he hath turned, from wandering on a foreign strand. Yes, answers Huntington, the number of dead souls is growing among America's business professional, intellectual, and Amer academic elites, and we might say the world over. Some of these elites are universalists who take American nationalism and exceptionalism to the extreme and who want to spread democracy across the world because, quote-unquote, America is the universal nation. And here Huntington is really referring more to George W. Bush's ideology than universalists like Jürgen Habermas. Other dead souls are economic elites who see globalization as a transcendent force that is breaking down national boundaries and giving rise to a new Civitas Maxima in the shape of the global market. Still a third group, in Huntington's view, are the moralists who make fun of patriotism and nationalism and who argue that, quote, international law, institutions, regimes, and norms are morally superior to those of individual nations. In contrast, for most ordinary citizens, Huntington argues, nationalism is a potent force that still lights fire in the hearts and makes people feel happy to return home from wandering on a foreign strand. Are cosmopolitanism dead souls then, as picked up again also by Gogol in his novel? Is cosmopolitanism the privileged attitude of globe trotting and world-hugging elites removed from the concerns of ordinary citizens. I contend that cosmopolitanism is not such a privileged attitude, but rather that it denotes a field of unresolved contrasts between particularistic attachments and universalist aspirations, between the multiplicity of human laws and institutions and the ideal of a rational order that would be common to us all between belief in the unity of humankind and the healthy agonism and antagonism generated by human diversity. Cosmopolitans become dead souls only if they forget these tensions and instead embrace a Polyanish ceaseless affirmation of global oneness and unity. As David DePue wisely observes, I'm quoting, by the way, I should mention that I'm using the PowerPoint for quotations only. You have to listen to the text. I'm not, I'm not doing a PowerPoint lecture. Quote, cosmopolitanism then considered as a positive ideal, whether formally or materially, 
generates antinomies that undermine its internal coherence. Considered, however, as a critical ideal, these difficulties largely disappear. The resulting conception of cosmopolitanism is a negative ideal blocked at aiming at false totalizations. False totalization also in the sense of Adorno, which I'm not going to explore here, but cosmopolitan as a critical ideal. Now, why use this term? Until recently, cosmopolitanism seemed buried as a term in the study of ideas of the 18th century. By the 19th century, historians were already struggling with the rise of nationalism. Cosmopolitanism seemed like a forgotten expression of a discredited European and North American enlightenment. The last two decades have seen a remarkable revival of interest in cosmopolitanism across a wide variety of fields, ranging from law to cultural studies, from philosophy to international politics, and even to city planning and urban studies. Undoubtedly, the most important reason for this shift in our sensibilities and cognitions is the confluence of epoch-making transformations referred to as globalization and the end of the Westphalian Keynesian Fordist state by some, the spread of neoliberal capitalism by others, and the rise of multiculturalism and the displacement of the West by the rest by still others. So cosmopolitanism has become a placeholder for thinking about this confusing present about globalization, the spread of neoliberalism, and the rise of multiculturalism, etc. And the theorist Peng Chia from Berkeley characterizes this present in the following ways. He says, what is distinctive about the revival, oops, one slide back, yeah. What is distinctive about the new revival of cosmopolitanism that began in the 1990s is the attempt to ground the normative critique of nationalism. Hence, and I start with the quote, I'm sorry for the back and forth. Hence, studies of various global phenomena such as transcultural encounters, mass migration, and population transfers between East and West, First and Third Worlds, North and South, the rise of global and business networks, the formation of transnational advocacy networks, and the proliferation of transnational human rights instruments have all been used to corroborate the general argument that globalizing processes, both past and present, objectively embody different forms of normative, non-ethnocentric cosmopolitanism because they rearticulate, radically transform, and even explode the boundaries of regional and national consciousness and local ethnic identities. I'm sorry for the length of the sentence, but I did not write it. <laughs> I closed the quote. <laughs> In view of these contradictory tensions, the term cosmopolitanism, if it suggests a positive normativity, becomes very seductive and deeply problematic. It may seem as if merely invoking the forces which, quote, explode the boundaries of regional and national consciousness and local and ethnic identities, simply by invoking this, that we are transcending them. But certainly, this is not the point. Uh, clearly, uh, cosmopolitanism and all these developments are going together with a heightened awareness of national and ethnic identities, the emergence of politics of 
identity. So I wish to argue that as misleading as the project of cosmopolitanism may be in some of its formulations, it needs to be saved both from its nationalist communitarian critics on the right and its cynical detractors on the left who identify it with neoliberal capitalism no less than from its postmodernist and deconstructionist skeptics. Caught between the nostalgia for communities unaffected by difference and the cynicism that reduces cosmopolitanism to a bid for imperial domination or neoliberal capitalist hegemony, much contemporary thought, I think, has missed what is new in the development of the contemporary cosmopolitan human rights discourse. Now, to appreciate the depth and tenacity of some of the contrasts of cosmopolitanism, I actually want to do a brief historical survey. Because I think this shows to us that some of the tensions associated with cosmopolitanism have always been part of this project, and this is its significance. The term cosmopolites is composed of cosmos and polites. And the tension between these perspectives has always been significant. Montaigne recalls that Socrates was asked whence he came from. He replied, not Athens, but the world. He whose imagination was fuller and more extensive embraced the universe as his city and distributed his knowledge, his company, and his affections to all mankind, unlike us who only look at what is underfoot. Whether or not Socrates said anything of this kind is in dispute, and I'm sure there are classicists among you who know this history better than I do, but the story is repeated by Cicero, by Epictetus in his discourses, and by Plutarch in the Exilio, who praises Socrates again for saying that he was no Athenian or Greek, but a Cosmian. Yet what does it mean to be a Cosmian? To live outside the boundaries of the city, according to Aristotle, one needs to be a beast or a god. But since humans are neither, and since the cosmos is not the polis, the cosmopolitan then is not really a citizen, but some other kind of strange being. To cynics such as Diogenes Liatus, this conclusion was not particularly disturbing, because he claimed that rather than being at home in the city, the cosmopolitan is indifferent to them all. The cosmopolitan for the cynics in the ancient world was a nomad, without a home, at peace with nature and the universe, but not with the human city, from whose madness and follies he distanced himself. Some of the neg negative connotations of the term with which we have become familiar in modern history, such as the term rootless cosmopolitanism, also alluded to by Huntington, but also part of the discourse and vocabulary of the nationalist and other right-wing forces, have their roots. This notion of rootless cosmopolitanism has its origins in the early period of the history of cosmopolitanism, during which the ancient cynics opposition to and contempt for the practices of the human cities originated. The negative vision of cosmopolitanism as a form of nomadism without attachments to a particular human city is transformed by the Stoic philosophers. Instead of insisting upon the absurd and incompatible plurality of the human nomoi, the laws of individual cities, 
Stoics argue that what humans share is not in the first place their laws, but rather their logos. Not the nomoi, but the logos. That in virtue of which they are capable of reason. In his meditations, Marcus Aurelius then writes, If we have intelligence in common, so we have reason. If so, then the law is also common to us all, and if so, we are citizens. If so, we share a common government, and if so, the universe is, as it were, a city. Now, in the centuries that follow, this idea of an order that transcends differences among the laws of various cities and is rooted instead in the rationally comprehensible structure of nature converges with the Christian doctrine of universal equality. The Stoic doctrine of natural law inspires the Christian ideal of the city of God versus the city of man and eventually finds its way into the natural law theories of Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Immanuel Kant. The negative and positive dimensions of cosmopolitas, which we first encounter in Greek and Roman thought, though, accompany the term across the centuries. A cosmopolitas is one who distances himself, either in thought or in practice, from the habits and laws of his city and judges them from the standpoint of a higher order that is considered identical with reason, with nature, or with some other transcendent source of validity. These tensions between citizenship in a bounded community and cosmopolitanism are transformed when Kant, Immanuel Kant, at the end of the 18th century, resuscitates the stoic meaning of cosmopolitanism by giving the term a new turn that places it at the heart of the Enlightenment project. It is also with Kant that the term cosmopolitan is transformed from a denial of citizenship into that of citizenship of the world and is linked to a new conception of human rights as cosmopolitan rights. Hence, to understand even why under current conditions cosmopolitanism offers itself as a positive <coughs> normativity, we have to turn briefly to Kant and then move beyond Kant. Let me explain this double move of going back to Kant and yet moving away from him. Oops, I'm going backwards instead of forwards, sorry, here we are. In his famous 1795 essay on perpetual peace, Sum Ewigen Frieden, Kant formulates three definitive articles. The essay is divided into definitive and preliminary articles. The definitive articles are the civil constitution of every state shall be republican, international rights shall be based on the federalism of free states, and the law of world citizenship shall be limited to conditions of universal hospitality. It's this third article that I have written about in the last number of years because it's very interesting. Look at the German for those of you who understand, das Weltbürgerrecht, okay, a Weltbürgerrecht, the right of world citizenship, soll auf Bedingungen der allgemeinen Hospitalität eingeschränkt sein, must be limited to conditions of universal hospitality. Kant himself notes how odd it is to use the locution hospitality in this context, and he says, 
it is not a matter of philanthropy, but right, because hospitality seems like a virtue out of moral, it doesn't seem like a right claim, right? In other words, he says, hospitality is not to be understood as a virtue of sociability, as the kindness or generosity one may show to strangers who come to one's land or who become dependent upon others, Certainly, hospitality has that meaning, but hospitality now he is saying is a right, an recht, which belongs to all human beings insofar as we view them as potential participants in a world republic. Kant writes, and here he now uses the German alternative for it too, he says, hospitality, Wirtbarkeit, means the right of a stranger not to be treated as an enemy when he arrives in the land of another. One may refuse to receive him when this can be done without causing his destruction. But so long as he peacefully occupies his place, one may not treat him with uh, hostility. It is not the right to be a permanent visitor, Gastrecht. A special beneficent agreement would be needed. Next. A special beneficent agreement, ein wohltätiger Vertrag, would be needed in order to give an outsider a right to become a fellow inhabitant for a certain amount of time. So, hospitality, even for Kant, now note this, is a temporary right of visitation, ein Besuchre, which all men have uh, to associate. They have it in virtue of their common possession of the surface of the earth, where as a globe they cannot infinitely disperse, and hence must finally tolerate the presence of each other. Now, these very rich passages, these very rich claims, uh, Kant's claim that first entry cannot be denied to those who seek it if this would result in their destruction, Untergang, has become incorporated in one way or another into the Geneva Convention of the Status of Refugees of 1951 as the principle of non-refoulement. Non-refoulement means signatory states to the Convention on the Status of Refugees cannot forcibly, ought not forcibly return refugees and asylum seekers to their countries of origin if doing so would pose a danger to their lives and freedom. Of course, sovereign states manipulate this article to define life and freedom more or less narrowly, and we know how difficult the process of granting asylum has become um, throughout uh, Europe and North uh, uh, America. And many European countries resorted to this practice of de depositing refugees in a so-called safe third country during the Yugoslav civil war. So in Kant's formulations, as in subsequent state practice, there remains an element of unchecked sovereign power. It is up to the sovereign to decide whether the guest can become a permanent resident. And Kant calls that ein wohltätiger Vertrag. Although I will not be talking about this issue in my current lecture, I've written about it. The whole dilemma of how guest workers can become permanent residents and eventually citizens, okay, and the very notion of a guest worker still reflects this 18th century legacy, the difference between the guest and the one who becomes a member. And already Kant said membership is a right of sovereign beneficence. I have argued that actually eventually 
the right to citizenship is not automatic, but I view it as a human uh, rights claim. Jacques Derrida has pointed out, correctly I think, that hospitality involves a moment of dangerous indeterminacy for the guest. Does the host know that the intentions of the guest are not hostile? How does one establish these intentions across vast civilizational, religious, and communicational divides? Doesn't hospitality often begin with a mutual suspicion that needs to be overcome? And doesn't this inter-indeterminacy account for the linguistic proximity of the two terms in their Latin roots, hostis and hospice? Hostis, the origin of the term hostility, and hospice, the origin of the term hospitality. In order to capture this dangerous indeterminacy, Derrida introduces the term hostipitality. <laughs> the moment to capture that moment when the cosmopolitan project can get mired in hostility rather than hospitality. Kant's legacy then is ambiguous. That's why I say back to Kant and beyond Kant. On the one hand, Kant wanted to justify the expansion of commercial and maritime capitalism of his time, insofar as these developments brought the human race together. Some of the most interesting discussions in Sum Ewigen Frieden are the footnotes about the opening of China and Japan by you know, European powers. So Kant was very well aware of the expansion of Europe as the background to this essay. The cosmopolitan right of hospitality gives one the right of peaceful temporary sojourn, but as Kant's comments on European attempts to penetrate into China and Japan make clear, it does not entitle people to plunder and exploit, conquer and overwhelm by superior force those peoples and nations among whom one is seeking uh, sojourn. Whereas in the context of the 18th century, the distinction between Besuchsrecht and Gastrecht may have been progressive, in our days it clearly no longer is. As I have argued in the rights of others, uh, the book, there is a human right to the eventual naturalization and citizenship of the foreigner, granted that certain conditions are satisfied. But the main point is that there can be no condition of permanent alienage or non-belonging. The power of the sovereign, in this respect as well, must be limited by human rights uh, considerations. Whatever its limitations, in claiming that relevant actors in the international domain were not only states and heads of states, but also civilians and their various associations, which themselves could be subject to a new sphere of the law, Kant gave the term cosmopolitas a new meaning. World citizenship involves a utopian anticipation of world peace to be attained as a result of increased communication, including le du commerce, sweet trade. Through increased human contact for Kant, the injustices done in one part of the world would be felt by all. Cosmopolitan citizenship then means first and foremost the creation of a new world legal order and of a public sphere in which human beings would be entitled to rights in virtue of her humanity alone. Now, it is widely accepted that in our world, since the UDHR of 1948, we have moved 
from an international to a cosmopolitan um, civil society. The Universal Declaration's preamble states that the peoples of the United Nations Charter affirm their dignity and faith in the worth of the human person and the equal rights of men and women. And the preamble to Article 2 states, all persons without distinction of any kind, such as race, color, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, or other status, are entitled to dignified treatment regardless of the political, jurisdictional, or international status of the country or territory to which a person belongs." End of quote. Modern constitutions, most modern constitutions, incorporate cosmopolitan ideals in the form of a list of basic rights formulated either as a Bill of Rights, as is the U.S. Constitution, or as a Déclaration des droits de l'homme et de citoyens, as it is the French Constitution. This cosmopolitan legacy can also be honored, as in the German Constitution, through an enumeration of basic rights, Articles 1 through 19, or through something like the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union, which has now just been incorporated into British law, or, um, and it's now part of the Lisbon uh, Treaty. The European Convention of Human Rights now encompasses 47 different countries that are not members of the European Union alone, including uh, Norway and uh, Turkey, as well as countries like Russia. Yet, there can often be tensions between the moral and legal principles articulated through these basic rights and other articles of the same constitution and between the interpretation of these basic rights by judicial bodies and their concretization by democratic legislatures in the form of specific laws. A great deal of constitutional debate concerns this legal hermeneutic task of translation reinterpretation. The interpretation of basic rights is a political project in the sense that such interpretation involves how a people that wishes to live by certain principles in the light of its own changing self-understanding, rearticulates these binding principles under which it has constituted itself as a polity, and this gives rise to difficult moral and political questions to which you have already referred in the introduction, but maybe we can pick, take them up in the, in the discussion. It is a fundamental mistake to assume, in my view, that rights that are principles can be concretized without continuous interpretation and articulation in self-governing polities. Central to my understanding of the cosmopolitan project is my belief that cosmopolitanism does not posit a human being as a legal subject who does not belong to any polity. Cosmopolitan rights cannot be realized without contextualization and articulation through self-governing entities. Or as Hannah Arendt had said, there has to be, first of all, a right to have rights a right to be a member in order to have rights at all. In addition to the tensions that may exist between the interpretation of basic rights and other aspects of democratic constitutions, both in theory and in practice, today most states operate in an increasingly transformed international legal environment surrounded by many intergovernmental organizations, non-governmental organizations, new post-national reconfigurations, such as the European Union. Cosmopolitan norms 
also structure this international environment, though many international treaties, as is the case with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In this respect as well, the democratic will of the people has to be bound by these covenants. These public law documents have introduced crucial transformations into our world. While it may be too utopian to name them steps towards a world constitution, such as Jürgen Habermas has recently done, this legal landscape certainly is more than the simple treaties among states of traditional international relations theory. They are constituent elements of a global civil society. In this global society, individuals are rights-bearing not only in virtue of their citizenship, but in the first place in virtue of their humanity. But the spread of a cosmopolitan legal order brings its own problems. What sense does it really make to defend a cosmopolitan political project when to be a rights-bearing person means first and foremost to be a member of a sovereign polity that can protect one's rights to have rights in Hannah Arendt's terms? Is the post-Westphalian condition towards which we seem to be moving predicated on the decline of the nation-state, a progressive development from the standpoint of human rights and the practice of citizenship? Or are we facing the spread of a neoliberal empire in which human rights discourse acts merely as a Trojan horse to introduce neoliberal commodification and monetarization into all corners of the world? What about, in Peng Chia's terms, the contaminated normativity of human rights in global capitalism? Doesn't legal cosmopolitanism and the imprecise doctrine of the responsibility to protect, for example, amount to a justification of moral interventionism and moral imperialism? Without doubt, some of the recent reluctance in contemporary thought about justifying human rights in universalistic terms and at a more political level, to defend even the International Court of Justice, can be traced back to the fear that they would be in instrumentalized for political ends and that a robust language of human rights may be used to justify moral imperialism. By the way, I think this is wrong, but these are the critiques that are coming primarily from the left. So this ambiguous legacy, which is at the heart of cosmopolitanism, makes many ask then, if cosmopolitanism is a thinly veiled version of the imperialism of yesterday, now parading as the neoliberal globalization of the times. As is well known, the first most vociferous objections to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights came from the American Anthropological Association, which saw in this document the illegitimate universalizing of Western visions of order to the rest of humanity. It's really quite interesting to read the American Anthropological Association's 1948 objections. They have changed them since then. They have adopted a pro-human rights uh, position. Thus, we face a conundrum. In the last 50 years, legal cosmopolitanism has proceeded apace, and nation states like Gulliver's Giant have been pinned down by hundreds of threads of covenants, treaties, and declarations. And consequently, skepticism towards the validity of these declarations and the spread of universal human rights has also grown. 
particularly in the light of recent world political events, faith in international law and human rights has been shaken to its core. An illegal war was carried out against Iraq by the United States and its allies. The Patriot Act in the US of 2001 gave the president unlimited and quasi-emergency powers to conduct the so-called global war on terror. The war on Al-Qaeda and in the territories of Pakistan and Afghanistan, originally justifiable according to UN Security Council resolutions, morphed, turned into a kind of nation building with no clear goals in sight or in end. And adding insult to injury, the Guantanamo camp in Cuba, Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan, and Abu Ghraib in Iraq have become the new sites of the deepest violations of human rights law through the use of torture, illegal interrogation techniques, and the general flouting of the Geneva Conventions. The Cosmopolitan Project appears in tatters, rags. This would be the wrong conclusion to draw. And what we need, rather, is a cosmopolitanism without illusions. We need to use the public law documents of our world and legal advances in human rights covenants soberly, without too much utopian fanfare, to enable the growth of counter-hegemonic transnational movements claiming rights across borders in a series of interlocking democratic iterations, reinventions, and reappropriations of valuable norms. Much recent interpretation of developments in contemporary human rights law and cosmopolitan norms misunderstands what I have called their jurisgenerative effect. By jurisgenerativity, a term first suggested by Robert Cover, I understand the law's capacity to create a normative universe of meaning that can often escape the formal lawmaking. The Cover writes, the uncontrolled character of meaning ex exercises a destabilizing influence upon power. My claim is that the jurisgenerative effect of human rights declarations enable new actors such as women and ethnic, linguistic, and religious minorities to enter the public sphere, to develop new vocabularies of public claim-making, and to anticipate new forms of justice to come in processes of democratic iterations. Democratic iterations involve complex public arguments, deliberation, and exchange through which universalist claims are contested and contextualized, invoked and revoked, oops, I have to go back, throughout legal and political institutions. But I've been asked, is this concept an empirical or a normative one? What is the relationship of democratic iterations to discourses of normative justification? Most importantly, what guarantee is there that democratic iterations will result in juris generativity rather than in juris uh, pathos? And I hope we can return to these questions during the uh, question period. Now, I'm moving to the concluding section. Democratic iterations and juris generativity can become historically effective categories only when and if they're embedded in the political culture and institutions of existing societies. To use an expression of Jürgen Habermas's, 
Social reality must meet philosophical ideals halfway and gegen common. And here we return to the debates expressed at the start of my lecture. I, mean, I, I think our task as philosophers, thinkers, is to develop concepts that are normative and abstract and that may give us a way, you know, imagine them like plows cutting through the grass in a field, but we cannot simply pluck, pluck these concepts from the fields. Uh, they have to enable us to think about the present, but there has to be some kind of meeting, you know, philosophy, meeting philosophy halfway uh, through a political culture. Today, I see a perfect storm developing in Europe and undermining cosmopolitan ideals. First, we are confronted with a situation of tremendous economic insecurity. Europe is facing one of its worst economic crises, probably in the last 30, 40 years, but also a process of deep political alienation as this construct called the European Union is becoming more and more technocratic and less and less intelligible. And you as Norwegians are staying out of it, though within it and without. Within this context, to use Sigmund Bauman's phrase, strangers are dangers, and they become even more significant dangers under conditions of political and economic alienation. Strangers are visible. You smell their meat, and you don't like it. In Germany, there are references to Donner murders. Do you know what Donner is? Many of you do. It's the meat that turns around, that, you know, Turks and others, you... You smell the meat, and you don't like it. You see the way a stranger looks or treat their women, and you don't like it. Whereas the other dangers are less visible for you. And as Ian Buruma noted during a conversation we had in New York about the background of xenophobia um, in December 9, 2011 at the Institute for Public Knowledge in New York, the rhetoric against Islam easily switches against the local liberal elites who, to quote Buruma, are robbing us quote, supposedly of our national identity because they want us all to be Europeans, whereas we want our country back. So there is a kind of slide in the signification of the stranger. Gert Wilders can switch in the same paragraph from denouncing Islam to denouncing the European Union. Second, we are faced with a profound bankruptcy of political elites, not just in Europe, but globally, I'm afraid. Techno-mediatic globalization has killed the independent and honorable statesmen or stateswomen. There are less and less politicians who have the stature of a Willy Brandt, of a Nelson Mandela, uh, even in my generation of a Joschka Fischer. I wish he would come back. We have politicians who are liars, entertainers, or masters of kitsch, and this has something to do with the televisual politics of our age. Candidates are done and undone by TV and the media, and nothing is more attractive and destructive than a sexual scandal. Sex in politics sells, maybe more so in the United States than in Europe, 
But sex also diverts and make us not think about anything else in politics that's really significant. Vida Italy, vida the United States. Third, we are faced at the present with the opportunism of the intellectuals. I call this opportunism because the response to the Salman Rushdie affair should not have been to condemn Islam to core, but instead one should have learned to make the hard distinctions between Khomeini, who, denounced the fatwa, who announced the fatwa against Rushdie and many other Muslim groups and individuals who opposed it. Like any civilizational tradition, like any great religion, Islam has its own arguments, its own debates, its own fanatics, and its own people for tolerance. Among European intellectuals, particularly among the French, the Dane, and the Dutch, a discourse has developed in recent years that can only be called a form of Protestant fundamentalism. The assumption is that there is one correct model of the relationship between religion and politics that should dominate in all of Europe and the world. If girls wear the hijab, it is because they are oppressed and ignorant creatures. If religious Muslims find it offensive that Quranic verses are written on the naked body of Ayan Hirshi Ali, it is because they are intolerant of avant-garde art, etc. Or take the subject of honor killings. Media reporting often makes it seem as if every Turkish brother or father is about to murder his sister or daughter if she goes off with someone who is not Turkish or Muslim. I need not hear, repeat here many instances of this Kulturkampf of our own days between the attitudes and beliefs of observant Muslim communities and the so-called liberal left intelligentsia that has dominated in Europe. And by the way, Kulturkampf was originally between Catholics and Protestants in Germany, not between Muslims and uh, Christians. Now, it is not that migrant communities do not have some of these problems. I mean, it would be foolish to deny it. But when you pick up these incidents as the only way to talk about the other, you reduce the otherness of the other to scandal. And scandal is not reasonable conversation. If you are really serious about working with these communities, the way in which some women's groups have done, go into the community and try to generate the kind of dialogue, moral and political dialogue, among conversation partners that is necessary. Uh, by the way, this has also something to do with the transformation and the decline of left culture uh, throughout uh, the world. We simply have forgotten some of the basic lessons of community organizing. Now, it is against this background that we have to return to the crimes of Andreas sparing Breivik. He acted alone, but unfortunately he was not thinking alone. I would like to draw here from a very incisive article written by a Turkish colleague from Koç University in Istanbul, published in the remarkable new journal, which is in English, by the way, called Insight Turkey. Şener Aktürk, Shener Akhtu calls his essay, September 11, 1683, Myth of a Christian Europe and the Massacre in Norway. Anders Breivik's 1,500 pages long manifesto, 2083, a European Declaration of Independence, is based on the myth of a Christian Europe that takes 2083 as a marking point. How many of you know what 2083 refers to? Yes? 
Yes, thank you. Thank you. 2083 is the 400th anniversary of the failed siege of Vienna by the Ottomans and the beginning of 240 years of Ottoman retreat in Europe. And this is the title of Breivik's manifesto. Aptuk observes in this article that I recommend that one of the consequences of September 11th has been the meteoric increase in Islamophobic pseudo-scholarly publication on the theme of Eurabia, referring to the imaginary takeover of Europe by Muslims, mostly written by Americans on the Islamic threat facing Europe. Many of these works, I'm uh, continuing, in particular those of Robert Spencer and Bat Yeor, uh, Egyptian-Israeli scholar, are heavily cited in Breivik's manifesto as justifications for his mass murder against social democratic youth whom he blames for the alleged Islamic infiltration of Europe. Historically, of course, Muslims and Jews have been as much a part of this geographical entity called uh, Europe as Christians and before them the Greeks, the Romans, the pagan Romanic tribes, including the Nordic Visigoths. Muslims ruled parts of Spain and Portugal for almost eight centuries, from 711 until 1492. There was an Islamic kingdom in Sicily from 827 AD until 1091. And my birth city of Istanbul, artificially divided by some 19th century geographers into the European and the Asian side, is the old capital of the old Byzantine Empire and in my childhood the home of Greeks, Armenians, Assyrians, Turks, Jews, and many others. Now the most astonishing revelations in Shener Aktuk's article, to me at least, come from his account of the details of the complexity of the Ottoman siege in Vienna. And here he draws also upon the work of my uh, colleague from Yale, the historian Timothy Snyder. The key figure in the Ottoman siege of Vienna of 1682 is a Hungarian nobleman called Imre Tökerli. After his father is killed in a rebellion against the Catholic Habsburgs, Tökerli flees to Ottoman Transylvania to meet with other Hungarian noblemen fleeing Habsburg protection. Um, persecution, I'm sorry. Under his leadership, these rebels, Hungarian rebels, re rebel against the Habsburg in 1678 and force Emperor Leopold to restore Hungarian liberties in the Treaty of Sopron of 1681. I love these details. And after Tökerli is restored as the sovereign of Upper Hungary, the struggle of the Habsburgs against him begin, and Tökerli goes and asks for help from the Ottoman Empire. I'm quoting from Akturk. A coterie of Muslims, Protestants, Orthodox, and independence-minded Hungarians laid siege to Vienna. Eh? Muslims, Protestants, Orthodox, and independence-minded Hungarians laid siege to Vienna, which was rescued by the Polish king with the indispensable aid of Muslim Tatar warriors. This is hardly the picture of a clash between Islam and Christendom. 
In fact, Vienna was saved by the Polish king, Jan Sobieski, whose forces included a large contingent of Muslim Tatars, crucially calling to this, you know, allegedly calling, you know, this now a Christian victory completely deems that it does injustice to this, uh, uh, to this um, narrative. Now, with the decline of the cosmopolitan Europe, regimes of old Europe and the emergence of the European nation-state and the universalizable form of polity for all peoples, this cosmopolitan history of Europe has been forgotten. It resurfaces in Breivik's manifesto as mythology, not as the triumph of the multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-religious Habsburgs over the equally multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-religious Ottomans, but as the clash of Christianity against Islam. This is history as myth, myth in the service of our apolitical cause. But our task as researchers and thinkers is to restore this cosmopolitan history of Europe, to render justice to the complexity of its history and to the beauty of the encounter of these religions, not only in the Middle East, but upon the shores of Europe as well. Thank you. Thank you.